Welcome to another episode of Take Fountain. I'm here with my partner, Tom Mount. And we have, and we we're doing the second part on Smoking the Bandit because we wanted to talk to the producer of Smoking the Bandit. And I always love these showbiz stories because, because everybody's the hero of their own story. Like if, I've, if I tell you about the view, it always sent, you know, it's always me or the Barbara Walters special. But when you hear competing points of view on things, when you hear the, how something is made, I'm curious how your two stories match up for Smoking the Bandit. With us today is the producer of Smoky, uh, uh, Mort Engelberg, who has not only made this um, uh, f- f- fantastic movie that we're still talking about, but he also, uh, this movie led him through uh, many other films, uh, one of them being The Hunter, which was, was Steve McQueen's last movie, which I'm fascinated about and I'm going to ask him about later. And it also led him all the way to the White House, which I'm just going to hold that as a tease for a moment. But first, Mort, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. A pleasure. And so, Morton, I'm uh, going to start very quickly with a simple question. Um, you've produced a ton of movies, uh, 16, 17, I'm not, something like that. And then you made a remarkable shift in your life that also paid off in a big way. So you've had two completely distinct careers. How on earth did that happen to a nice boy from Memphis? My brother and a fellow named Nicky Cantor, who later became Secretary of Commerce and U.S. Trade Rep. Uh, we grew up in Memphis. Nicky's from Nashville. My brother and Mickey, uh, after law school, somehow ended up as Carter appointees with Hillary Clinton to the Board of Directors of Legal Services for the Poor. Okay. So they were friends from the 70s. In August of 91, my brother and Mickey convinced me to go to Little Rock for a week to put on Clinton's announcement uh, to run for president. Right. The night of the announcement, and it was quite successful, but the night of the announcement, there's a dinner at the governor's mansion. Mrs. Clinton asked if I'd get on the plane with uh, Clinton and a fellow named Bruce Lindsay, who was his lifelong friend, and for a week. And I was just finishing a picture I could edit, you know, with videotape wherever I went. So I said, yes, that week became uh, 11 months. <laughs> Nobody knew who Bill Clinton was. Uh, midway through the thing, Clinton said, you know, I've got a note here. We don't have any payroll information from you. And I explained to him that there was never going to be any payroll information from me because I was a volunteer and you cannot fire a volunteer. <laughs> so that's the relationship. You got tangled up in the movie business. Let's try to chart that a little bit. It was at a point when I was trying to break the Kennedy Traver umbilical. I'd been working for Sergeant Traver at the poverty program in the Peace Corps. Um, my friend Wilson called me and I thought he said, you want to be in the movies? And I said, you bet. <laughs> and a week later, I ended up as the unit publicity director on a movie called The Dirty Dozen. Ah. I had similar jobs on a picture called Far From the Madding Crowd, where you probably remember I did not have an affair with Julie Christie. Right. Uh, third picture I worked on was something called The Comedians with Burton, Taylor, sure. Jane, Daniel Jones, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Which wasn't and, funny, but by the way. Uh, and nobody went. So <laughs> yeah. Not my problem. Yeah. I ended up in business with a fellow named Ray Stark and to so produce movies. Let me interrupt you, uh, Mort, if you don't mind. Tell us just a little bit about Ray Stark. Let me let everyone know that Ray was one of the great legendary producers of the business. He produced, among other things, West Side Story, Misfits, The Way We Were, Funny Girl, Anna, 
any steel magnolias and many, many, many Jewish, others, yeah. Night of the Iguanas, etc. Mm -hmm. But he was also famous as one of the most irascible and difficult characters in the business. I certainly had that problem with him many times when I was running Universal. So how on earth did you end up, and not only did you end up there, Mort, but you got along with Ray. I, first of all, I'd never met the man in my life. I got a phone call from a guy, come over and have lunch. I went to this r mansion in Homeby Hills in Beverly Hills, uh, quite impressed with the art, whatever. We have lunch. Ray says, look, I don't want to fool with lawyers or anything. I want you to come be in business with me. You'll make some movies, be a producer. I suspect, and again, now that Ray is no longer with us, that there was a woman I was romantically involved with in New York, but Ray had a very good friend who was also pursuing the woman. And I suspect that somehow linking me would have enabled her, or this guy, to get closer to her. So I don't know. That's the only way I can figure out. You, 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 you think he, get, he gave you a job to get you out of the way so his friend could be with the girl you were with? I suspect. I'm just, I don't know. It, it sounds like well. Hollywood to me, right? But I got to say more. I think that's completely logical. Um, so you, when, when you and I got together, you were head of production, whatever that means, for Raystar, his production company. And how did Smokey and the Bandit come into your hands? Where did it come from? Uh, I had earlier with a friend named Steve Tish developed uh, a screenplay that uh, two young writers, Lorimer and Winkless, you may remember, Tom, yes. uh, had written called The Great Cape Girardeau Leap. Right. Uh, somehow, and I don't know to this day how, Burt Reynolds got involved, grabbed the script, and we suddenly had a deal with Burt Reynolds to do this picture. Okay. I went to meet Burt Reynolds. I'd never met the man before. He insisted there was only one man in America who could direct the picture, Hal Needham. And, of course, I agreed, having not the faintest idea who Hal Needham was. <laughs> Hal Needham was a former roommate of Burt's, good friend, and a, you know, the stuntman of the stars, a great stuntman who knew less about making movies than I did, if such a thing is possible. Uh, Columbia, anxious to make the other picture, this Burt Reynolds picture, agreed if Needham would do a screen test shooting some uh, tests. Uh, Needham and I became friendly. Needham told me the story of a movie he wanted to make about bringing Coors beer west to east, people getting killed, whatever. A very serious movie. We sort of ended up with a very, very bare plot outline. A, guy named, a fellow named James Lee Barrett, who I hope I won't get in trouble, wrote a script on spec. Right. Uh, and that's the genesis of the picture. And when uh, I encountered okay. that, it was more or less in treatment form. I remember I had to buy it from Columbia to move it to Universal, and it was called, I believe, CB to Atlanta. Is that right? Something like that. I can't remember. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I couldn't figure out what the hell that meant, CB to Atlanta, but hey. And um, then you did a miraculous job of guiding that rough, I'll call it a treatment, it wasn't really, it might have been a tr script in somebody's mind, but it didn't seem like one. You turned it into a really good screenplay. How did that happen? Well, first of all, I disagree with you. I didn't think it was such a very good screenplay. Uh, 
but it was just, you know, picking and poshking around. We uh, were fortunate in that Bert had a 12 or 14 day window between two pictures he was supposed to do at um, Warner Brothers. Right. And I guess uh, the notion of a Burt Reynolds movie for two and a half million dollars appealed to you, Tom, and it did. your colleagues at Universal. And that's how the picture got made. Uh, yeah. The beauty of the picture, let me just say this. People refer to Smoking the Bandit as a Burt Reynolds movie. It's the same picture Burt made six times in a row. White Lightning, Gator, WW and the Dance King. Yeah, but know, they right? were not hits. Those things were not hits, were they? Well, oh yeah, they were hits in the day. In they the day. Cost, little, they, little they cost two and a half million dollars. Yeah. They made between uh, 12 and 15 million dollars. Okay. Domestic film rental. They weren't, they weren't Smoking the Bandit type hits. Well, Smoking the Bandit, you add Jackie Gleason, and it becomes on somewhere south of $400 million. Right. So, you know. It's fascinating. To this day, I will swear that it's a Jackie Gleason movie. Yeah, right. Yeah. But as I say, the reason we were able to make the picture, and I'm sure Tom will agree, was, you know, Universal had a Burt Reynolds movie for $2.5 million. Correct. And in, as you may or may not remember, Mort, uh, inside Universal, I had a very rocky relationship with the then head of distribution, Henry H.R. High Martin, who thought I was both a communist and a hippie. Um, <laughs> and I tend to agree with him, but nevertheless, <laughs> um, he thought this was something that would only play in redneck cities on a very limited run. And he basically hated the movie all the way through until we previewed it. Let's put a pin in that, however. Well, no, no, no. Let me make a correction for you. Yeah. We had scheduled a preview. We'd never seen the picture with public. Right. Scheduled a preview. I received a call from Mr. Martin, who at that time, I think, was the superstar of domestic sales managers for yes. the entire motion picture business. That's right. He had seen the movie. Uh, this was not based on a script or a story or anything. He had seen the finished movie. Mm. He called me and he said, Mr. Engelberg, I know you have a preview schedule for next week but I'd be grateful if you called at all. And I said, well, why would that be, Mr. Martin? He said, because, you know, the word gets out on these things. Now, <laughs> he had already had a couple of hundred bookings in Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, stuff yep. like that. And his attitude was that the picture was so bad, he was going to lose those few existing bookings yes. he had. Well, he, he went, that's right. And, and Hi Martin went on a great length telling me what a piece of junk this picture was and why it was never going to get released anywhere. As you may remember, I pled with my superiors, uh, Tannen and Wasserman, to find some way to get this out of, uh, you know, six counties in Alabama. And so Hi Martin, to try to fuck us over, decided he would put it in Radio City Music Hall. Exactly. As a place we would certainly fail. He, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and but the picture did play well, strangely enough, in some cities. The Washington Post gave it one of the great reviews I've ever seen. Tom Shale, great review. Uh, uh, you know, just anyway. No, it's it true. Was, it was and, a miracle, you know. Um, and Mort, it played really well in Radio City Music Hall. Well, it did business there. Again, Needham and I, knowing nothing about this business, were wise enough to let Jackie Gleason do whatever he wanted. <laughs> right. 95% of Jackie Gleason in that movie 
you know, was on the spot. He, he never scripted. So, um, yeah. What do you remember about the picture? I mean, when you're, the making of the picture. Let's go back before. When you're day making. One, day one, uh, Tom had given us a great old production manager from Universal who'd probably been there since the silent days. Yeah. Wonderful man. Knew the business inside and out. Day one, we were shooting an exterior on a highway in Georgia. Cloudy day. He came over to me and said, what do you think? And I said, about what? He said, the weather. I said, what do you mean? He said, it looks like rain. Should we go to the cover set? And I said, first of all, what's a cover set? And why are you asking me? <laughs> he explained that I was the producer. Oh, yeah, okay. That was day one. <laughs> was, uh, was Bert, uh, was, was he... He's, uh, the, the reputation is he's not very easy to deal with, or that was the reputation he had for a while. Uh, did you find that making this picture? Uh, he's well, dead. I, you can, yeah, I think you yeah, can say something. It's all right. I don't know <laughs> what I can use without libeling. You, you can say anything you want, Mort, and we will edit yeah. it, so don't we worry. Two, two giant arguments. Uh, one, he insisted on Rita Marino playing the Sally Field part. Yes. Why, I don't know. Yeah, I think I, we know yeah, why. I know why. <laughs> yeah. Secondly, we finished the picture. We showed him a rough cut, and he said, the picture's pretty good, but you got to get rid of about 85% of that Gleason crap. And it's <laughs> Hal and I left the cut, you know, screening room. Hal said, I'm going over to the cutting room. And I said, Hal, you're the one with a gun, but I swear if one frame comes out of that picture... I'm going to have someone murder you. <laughs> that was it. You know, Bert, uh, Bert only worked in the picture, I think, 12 days. He's That's only right. out of the car twice. Initially, there were a number of scenes with he and Gleason. But when we did, on I think, day three or four, the scene with the two of them in the, the, the diner where they order the, you know, where Bert, or Gleason doesn't know who Bert is. You know, it's a wonderful, funny scene and whatever. Bert called that night to advise Hal and me that he was no longer going to work with Gleason. <laughs> but we literally were rewriting every night. Did they just not like each? Did he just not like him? Did Gleason no, he, not like Bert? I mean, uh, uh, Gleason didn't like Bert, but I think Bert's problem was that he realized that Gleason was eating him up, eating them up. Yeah, you know, it's, you know well, like working with a child or a dog. You know, I mean, right. Mort, do you remember? Do you remember in that scene at the so-called choke and puke, that restaurant scene? Right. Um, the, uh, Did you say choke and puke? Yes, that's, yeah, the, okay. that's the way it's referred to in the movie. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And both their trailers were in a big parking lot, and it was about 100 feet from the parking lot, maybe 150 feet to the diner. And Bert came out. There's a big crowd up and down the highway, people watching a shoot behind a piece of yellow tape. And Bert came out and walked across that, looked over at the crowd, doffed his cowboy hat, took a little bow. Everybody went crazy. Yay, Bert. Gleason came out three minutes later. He'd seen this from his trailer. And he got two or three steps into the parking lot, and he did the Gleason shuffle all the way across the parking lot. And they went completely <laughs> crazy. The volume was three times the volume Bert had. I felt like at that moment, Bert would die sticking pins in a doll of Jackie Gleason. Right. Um, a very quick moment, again, an aside. Uh, Jackie finished the scene and 
uh, you know, it was supposed to finish on the interior shot. Uh, Jackie said, oh, I got one thing let's do I, when I leave the place. So we said, fine, whatever Jackie wanted was proper. Jackie comes out, he has toilet paper stuck to his ear for some reason. <laughs> the bathroom, and a rather uh, overweight waitress comes following him out and says, I'll take that and pulls it off his ear. I said to Gleason, that is not funny for you, and it probably shouldn't be in the picture. Because he turns around and looks at the woman and says, nice ass. <laughs> right. okay. Anyway, here's how much I know. Nobody has ever heard that expression, nice ass, because it's covered by laughter. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so again, that's me explaining Jackie Gleason how yeah. to do comedy. So when you set up camp in Georgia, Jimmy Carter was governor. And as I remember, you got a lot of help from Jimmy Carter. Particularly, he sent you a highway patrol officer named Ronnie Gay, who was with you for the shoot, and spent a lot of time shutting down federal interstate highways illegally, as I remember. Correct. <laughs> well, we shot the entire picture within 15, 20 miles of Atlanta. And it, uh, Georgia was the first of the states to really encourage motion picture production, as the states now all do. I mean, we got no refunds, we got no money back or anything, but we did get a great deal of cooperation. And they did do things like shut down highways that they were not supposed to shut down just so we could shoot on them. Well, I was on the set with you when a guy came driving up in a white federal highway commission car and jumped out and said, you can't do this. At which point, Ronnie Gay, the Georgia Highway Patrol officer said, we're going to do it, and if you have a problem, call the governor. And it's the last I heard of that. I don't know what happened. <laughs> the, this this movie comes out, and and it's it's big. When do you when do you realize this is a hit? Can you can you, can you remember the moment exactly? Oh, I think you know the first week. I think Universal reported that it was a hit. Yeah. Uh, but more interesting, we dealt with a fellow whose name. I sadly have forgotten, with many other things, from uh, General Motors, the head of the Pontiac Division. Right, right. Let me just give you a bit of history. Uh, there's a race car driver named Carol Shelby, who's no longer with us, who was a good friend of mine. But initially, we were going to use a Ford Mustang Shelby in the picture. And about three weeks before start, the guy from Ford called and said, forget it. So the fellow from Pontiac reached in with the Trans Am, and that's how the picture, you know, the Trans Am ended in the picture. Why, why did the pe person from Ford not want, did they just didn't like the script? I guess they thought it wasn't important enough. In other words, they supplied cars to many, many films, but I guess they didn't want to give us two or three Shelby Mustangs and 10 or 15 other cars. Um, <laughs> but uh, two things. One, at the end of the picture, uh, the guy from Pontiac said they could track where the picture was playing based on showroom activity in Pontiac dealerships. That's wow. Right. We sort of made the car. Right. But in addition, uh, Shelby, once the picture took off it, as it did, had this guy from Ford fired. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mort, I'm told by our marketing department, uh, after the picture had played for about three months, that the film was responsible for a 65% increase in the sales of Trans Ams, a 
according to Pontiac. I guess, yeah, I mean, I don't know, but that's, yeah, yeah. Pontiac. That's what they told me. But let me give you, here's, we finished the picture. I, shortly after the movie's finished, I get a call from a lawyer in uh, Arkansas who needs to uh, depose me in a lawsuit. A, uh, a group of kids, uh, admittedly drunk and stoned, had left a party driving in a new Trans Am, hit a railroad crossing at 100 miles an hour. Uh, anyway, a young woman, nobody died, but a young woman became a quadriplegic. Wow. And they were suing uh, Pontiac for an unknown amount of money, you know, in Arkansas. And this was not a product liability case. I don't, I don't remember what the basis of the uh, lawsuit was. Uh, but anyway, I uh, called the guy Pontiac. I apologize, whatever. Anyway, bottom line is Pontiac settled the lawsuit. When we got ready to make the second picture, the four, I'm sorry, the Dodge Ram pickup truck was the star of vehicles in those days. And we were going to go ahead and use the Dodge Ram pickup in the picture, second picture. And, you know, a couple of months before we started, I got a call from a fellow at uh, Pontiac says, what's the matter? Don't you, you know, stay with your old friends? And I explained that I thought because of this lawsuit, and he said, don't be silly. That's the cost of doing business. So mm -hmm. that lawsuit didn't bother him. And then on the second picture, we had a similar accident in Texas, another lawsuit. And when we made the third picture, they were still happy to go with Pontiac. So wow. that's yeah. so what insurance companies are for, I guess. There are a tremendous number of, um, shall we say, analog stunts in this movie. There's no CGI to speak of. And... Uh, none period none period and this is really hal needham's raison d'etre you know he gets a chance to paint a stunt portrait that's extraordinary for its time and place and one of the stunts is a scene in which the trans am comes roaring down a dirt road and there's a bridge out ahead of it and right. they turn around to escape and the cops are coming behind them they turn back around they shoot across the bridge and as I remember watching dailies back in California, I'm seeing a shot, a frame of the car leaving the bridge, and the car goes up and up and out of the frame and disappears. <laughs> so, Mort, what happened? Well, again, four, we had four or five cameras, and I got Needham just to put one camera shooting the car going away. The stuntman was uh, supposed to hit the ramp, which was going to elevate him over the broken down bridge, you know, he's supposed to hit it at 50, 60 miles an hour. I don't know what the deal is, but these guys had figured that that would bring him down on the other side of the river on this other broken down bridge. We had hydraulics set up. He was going to hit that bridge, drive away, and then that bridge was going to collapse. Right. I probably drove the car at 90 miles an hour and ended up flying through the forest <laughs> Fortunately, all we had was the one back shot of, um, you know, the, the car, car disappears, right? The car disappears in the distance as if fired out of a, a cannon. And nobody gets hurt, I guess, huh? No. Wow. And again, I mean, I think the picture, I mean, they're, in my humble opinion, this picture is not known for great stunts. I don't know if Tom will agree with me, but it was, you know, rather routine. Yeah. So I say it was not rather routine, although there were other movies at the time trying remarkable stunts. 
but you may remember that you had a car fly off a freeway entrance and land on a truck going down Terrific, the interstate. Yes. You had a number of insane things. And I also remember a very dangerous moment because I happened to be there. I was not there all the time on the shoot, but I was in and out. Um, happened to be there the day that uh, a stunt driver took the Trans Am across a baseball field with some kids playing and the grass was wet and the car went where it wasn't supposed to go and it looked for a long moment like we might run over a few kids. We drove right through the middle of a high school band and it was a woman stunt performer. Right. She simply just, you know, lost the car. I don't know yeah. what happened. I don't know. Fortunately, no one was injured. And um, let me just be uh, asked a sort of crass question. So, all right, did you get rich from this? In other words, like when this is when this is done, and they you have some sort of I assume did you share in this in some fashion. Did you get a lot of money at the at when this hits? Uh, As Ricky Gervais, the British comic, would say, uh, "I'm talking to you here from my mansion." <laughs> yes, uh, I I owned a small percentage of the profits of the picture, and you know, did very well. Yeah. And, and and does and then also uh, again, I don't know anything about this. Today, do you still see money from smoking in the bandit? Yes, it, it's now started out. Uh, I think uh, the first couple of years you see it. Uh, quarterly then biannually and yeah. now it's annual on all of these pictures smoky one two three and you know the the price is it but is it without without telling me is it decent money every year from smoking in the bandit come to you uh yeah and again it just depends i mean this first of all let me tell you i, I these pictures have a life forever uh yeah arthur Krim 100 years ago uh in the 50s bought the pre-1948 Warner's Library, because that was the time uh, after which they had to pay actors residuals. Everybody thought this guy was crazy buying all these old movies, right. including Casablanca and things like that. Well, he knew about a thing called television, which was coming. Right. And television eats this stuff up. I was in Kazakhstan with President Clinton. Smokey and the Bandit was playing on one of the local channels. So, I mean, these pictures live forever. Uh, and each month now, it's each year, I get a statement that shows that in, you know, Peru, they did $11,000. Right. Them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The theatrical uh, portion of the gross in the United States has diminished to almost nothing because, you know, the picture's just not playing in theaters, but every night on Amazon, Netflix, you know, whatever that picture is playing. Play, somebody's renting it and watching it one more time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you got a piece. That's it's fascinating because you know I, I wrote a I wrote a movie in it was in '96 or something like that, right. and it wasn't a big film. It's called Unforgettable, which by the way, Ray Liotta passed. We hadn't really talked about that. He was a lovely man, and I talked to him uh, several times about this picture that that we we did. I would say together, but I wrote it and had nothing to do with it after that. But the point is, every year I get, I don't know, a few hundred dollars. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it wasn't, it was, it's not much, uh, but I get, I still get something from it. And I remember also you'd get the statement early on and it'd be like, well, it's doing terribly in the United States, but they love it in Spain. You know, or <laughs> you used to see those sorts of weird things happen with the movie. Um, 
Go so, ahead. So there are many stories about Jackie Gleason continually drinking while working, not just on this movie, but all of his work. Was that your experience? Yeah, here, uh, Jackie had a Batman named Mel. Right. And Mel was his guy. And, uh, you know, Jackie would sit and drink beer and work all day long. Uh, and he was fine. But toward the end of the day, if he felt that we were delaying him or keeping him longer than we should, the words Mel Scotch would ring out. Right. And we knew that once he got to the Scotch, we'd lose him. Right. I had somebody who worked with him, and I think I've said this before, and he pulled him this director aside and he said, look, anything complicated, that's morning. You know, like first thing in the morning, you want you got a lot of lines, scenes with a lot of lines, action, blah, blah, blah. The simple stuff, you know, by the time it's two o'clock, I'm pretty much have had a, had a few and I don't want, I, I, you're not going to get your best out of me. Well, at least I thought it was good that he was honest with them about yeah. it. So well, here's a very, again, quick place in story. We, uh, he gives a call, he's lonely one night, Needham and I staying at the Holiday Inn, go over to the Omni where he's staying. And it turns out he wants some company to have a drink. So we go down and we're in the bar, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. I've got to get up at 5.30 in the morning. I leave, he and Hal, around midnight. Uh, I see Hal on the, in front of the hotel at 6 a.m. the next morning, getting ready to go to location. I said, what's with Gleason? He said, well, he left with a couple of, uh, I think, hookers. <laughs> around two in the morning to go to an after hours club. Uh. We'll never see him again. <laughs> we get out to the location. He's sitting in front of his motorhome in makeup, hair, costume, yeah. everything, yeah. wardrobe, having a beer, ready to go to work. Yeah. Yeah. Totally yeah. professional. Just yeah. they just knew what he needed to do to get through the day. That so, was please. Yeah. So Mort, um, when the picture is in post production back at Universal um, there are a number of pieces missing from the picture that would pull it together. And they went to Ojai, as I remember. I went, shot yeah, we all went. You all went, right. You went to Ojai and you shot some uh, material of trucks and drive-bys and, and really pieces that just connect the dots in the movie. And what I love about it, when I've, and I've seen the movie recently, I hadn't seen it in years, uh, there are several scenes where trucks come screaming around a corner and there are a bunch of palm trees all of a sudden. And then the palm trees disappear and you're back in Georgia and <laughs> stuff like that, which I love. Um, well, this one you will love. Beginning, beginning of the picture, Burt Reynolds picks up a woman dressed in wedding garb, Sally Field, gets in the car. The car's got an open tea roof. Right. They drive away. We see her throw her veil you know, up through and out of the roof behind, you know, right. and it, it's left behind. About five minutes later, she does the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, in addition to that, Hal, uh, I can't remember the editor's name again, nice old man, done a million pictures. Yep. We're looking at cut footage, and as I said, we never left uh, this area around Atlanta. And, you know, they're supposed to be in Georgia, Arkansas, Oklahoma, whatever. And I pointed to him that we keep passing the same red barn. Right. And I said, we're dead. 
And he looked at me and he said, son, if they're watching the barn, it don't make no difference. <laughs> <laughs> and I That's a good point. my lesson about making mistakes in movies. You know, right. yeah. it didn't seem to bother anybody that that car flew into the forest, you know. It, yep. Uh, in the time we have left, can I ask you about The Hunter? Because I don't think a lot of people know this this movie, and they should because it's a it's a it's a really good action picture, and it's also. Let me just interrupt. It's on Amazon this week, so. Is it really? Okay, well, good. Then people can check it out. I I've, I've always liked this movie. I loved it when I saw it. It, it. it also has amazing stunts in it. I mean, like stunts you just can't believe that, that you guys did. But it was also Steve McQueen's last picture. What was it like? What was Steve like making that movie? Well, McQueen had a reputation as being a hitter and a shooter. And I was terrified. He turned out to be the sweetest, nicest, most wonderful cooperative man ever. I mean, for example, uh, there's a subway chase scene in the film through the loop in Chicago, where he's on the roof of a uh, subway car chasing the villain. Uh, and we were uh, going to shoot him against blue sky, you know, in a wind machine. And then the, you know, stunt man would do the rest of the stuff. He insisted on doing it. Wow. So we said, okay. But he also insisted that the old, the 40 year, the, 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 the then elderly director and I do the same thing. Uh -huh. So we had to ride with it. I mean, everything again in that scene, except for when the, he swings out on the arm of the car is is Steve McQueen, and you're and you're not you're not aware that he's ill at this time. No, um, I don't know. I don't know if he was. You don't know if he was. I don't know if this is true or not. But there's a uh, there's a story from that from the making of the hunter that there was a I want to say a homeless young woman, uh, maybe a teenager. I don't know what age she was exactly. Um, that that. Nobody realized that he was making a connection with all of this time that he was shooting the movie. You know what I'm talking about. Correct. What what happened there exactly? Well, again, it, it was a bit of a mystery at the time, but we, or I, discovered months later after the picture was finished that he and uh, his then-wife, Barbara Mente, had adopted this young woman or brought her back to California the last I heard, she was in law school. Wow. Yeah. You know, you don't think of him that way, do you? You don't think of no, him as that I, sort of guy. And no, no, no publicity about this. Right. Didn't yeah. no fanfare around it. No, no. nothing. Yeah. So, Fascinating. So, Mort, since we're venturing beyond Smokey just for a little bit here, um, there was a turning point in Bill Clinton's campaign for president, in which he did a bus tour. Uh, you are largely credited in the press for designing and implementing that bus tour. Tell me about it, and tell me about the result for Clinton. Well, what happened, traditionally, after Democratic conventions, uh, you do a bunch of airport fly-arounds, and, you know, those were a bunch of white men on airport tarmacs, you know, getting a picture. And I convinced a few people, not many in Arkansas, that we should do something different. And fellow and I got in a car one day and drove for a week between New York and uh, St. Louis, right. put this thing together with the notion that we would never, we would take this guy and the, you know, the campaign, a place where no presidential campaign had ever been. 
lot of small towns, which we did. However, uh, these small towns were all in major media markets. So that <laughs> if we were in Erie, Pennsylvania, small town, it was in the Pittsburgh media market. So right. it was a bit whorish. Anyway, the ultimate bottom line was really nobody other than Nikki Cantor, who's in sort of running the campaign, wanted to do it. Uh, Mickey went to McQueen, told McQueen it was my idea. McQueen said, well, Clinton. he's not looking for anything. Let's do it. You mean Clinton? Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing was when we left New York, we had uh, five buses and, you know, a case of soft drinks on each bus. Uh, and we're riding down. I had gone up to brief he and the Gores. Uh, and we're riding down the elevator. Gore said, it's the stupidest thing he's ever heard of. He's going to do it for two days. And Clinton said, sort of whispering, do you think this is a good idea? And I had to explain to him we had already rented the buses. Now, <laughs> this thing became a miracle. Uh, I would like to say it was my idea. Or I can take credit for what happened. Something happened between the two of these guys. We would draw crowds on just railroad sidings or a flashing light. We were going into Springfield, Illinois. We had a big uh, event at the Lincoln Courthouse or whatever there. We were due there at 10 o'clock. You know, at midnight, we were still 40 miles away. I'm in a police car a mile ahead of the thing. Uh, there's a flashing yellow light and about 500 people out in the middle of the street at midnight. And I phoned back to Bruce Lindsay, and he said, we got to stop. Uh, and at that point, I announced that uh, Clinton was going to be elected president because we did nothing to build a crowd. The people just turned out so well, that's 500 people in the middle of the street at midnight is a big leading indicator that's for sure but um, as i say none of us can take any credit for it it happened as right. much of these bus trip things happened now, let me one other quick story yes uh we we're in on the second one we we're doing an event in, um outside of cleveland ohio big right. par parking lot probably 30 40 000 people Wow. I'm under the stage, and I see a group of eight or ten people in evening dress. I go over and I say, "What's going on?" The guy says to me, "It's my marriage. We just got wet. We just got married." So I get Gore's attention, and of course they bring them up on the stage, and it's a big deal, you know, wedding couple coming to a Clinton Gore event. Uh, an hour and a half later, we're outside of I think Erie, Pennsylvania. Again, I'm way ahead. I see a bunch of people in evening dress. I stopped the police car and I said, what's going on? I said, we just got married. <laughs> so anyway, we stopped, we do it again. CNN led that night with the story that movie producer Mort Engelberg had hired a bunch of extras to dress up as wedding goers. <laughs> <laughs> and the sad thing is, I wish I had thought of it, but I did. <laughs> right. And I also read in the newspaper coverage about this, Mort, uh, one newspaper uh, and I believe it was the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, credits you as a movie producer who was clever enough to figure out how to turn people out in vast numbers for these politicians. But you didn't do that at all. You didn't rig it, right? Well, after the first one we did, we uh, had something, uh, you know, on the first one we had five, four buses with press. They, it was a big advantage for the press because it cost them $80 a day rather than $900 a day on an airplane. Uh, but by the second bus trip, we had 14 bus loads of press. <laughs> I had two advanced people a couple of hours ahead of us 
going to places where we weren't going, but to announce that we were coming. And right. they sort of serendipitously built these spontaneous crowds. So it is true. In other words, you yeah. are a movie producer. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because you, you made this money and you decided to, to, to funnel your energy into something you believed in, which was this political campaign. Am I, am I making too, is, is that too simple a way to put it? Most fun I've ever had with my clothes on. Uh, <laughs> when you're a movie producer and you go someplace, you're treated, as time will verify, rather well. Yeah, yeah. Go someplace and you announce you're there ahead of the president. If you want to sleep with the mayor's wife, that's okay, too. <laughs> I, got to, I never slept with any mayor's uh, wife. Right, of course. But I got to see and do things that in my lifetime I never would. I, you know, I had lunch with Tony Blair when he was a prime minister in the private quarters at 10 Downing. I, you know, uh, you know, the prime minister of Israel you know, wanted to know if I was a guy that made Smokey and Abandon. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's fascinating, isn't it? No, but I mean, it was, it was a way to say, I yeah. saw the world. I mean, yeah, I never, the impact is incredible. It's just an amazing career that you've had. It's, uh, well, it's, the second part wasn't a career. It was, it was a passion, I guess, huh? Whatever it was, yeah. 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 So in summation, you remain, and I know because I tracked this with you over many years, you remain incredibly loyal to Bill Clinton. And Bill's been through a whole lot of stuff. And if you had to get on a plane tomorrow and go with Clinton somewhere for some good reason, would you still do it? In a minute. I mean, I, you know, sadly, he's not traveling. But, I, you know, during the uh, period post-president between 2000 and about 2015-16, you know, I was with him almost every week. But, yeah. Again, not I, I, not going to Cleveland or Detroit, but going <laughs> to Paris or Berlin. So, right. Now, let me tell you one more quick, quick story, uh, Bill Clinton story. The third film I worked on was with Burton and Taylor. Right. We were in, we started shooting in what was then Dahomey. It's now Benin in West Africa, uh, for reasons unbeknownst to me, having had no contact with Mrs. Taylor, other than the fact that each evening I would sit with her husband and have some cigarettes and, you know, share his whiskey. She took an incredible dislike to me. Okay. And all she really had to do was pick up the phone and call MGM and said, get rid of this guy. She never did. She kept me around for 16 weeks, sticking needles in me. I mean, made life miserable. That's 1996. It's happened, something like that. Uh, 2012, 13, 14, something like that doing a walkthrough at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel here in Beverly Hills with the Secret Service for an event the next night. A woman comes up to me and says, are you with President Clinton? I said, yes. She said, Mrs. Taylor would like to see you. So I go back to her dressing room. She doesn't recognize me. <laughs> right. Of course not. Uh, you know, she says, I never met Bill, and I'm going to insist to meet him tomorrow night. And I said, Bill who? And she said, Bill Clinton. And I said, oh, you mean President Clinton? She said, him. So I said, fine. Anyway, I told the Secret Service lead, you know, of my problems with her, and we had a meeting. The next night, no matter where we were in that ballroom, we stayed away from Elizabeth Taylor. We moved <laughs> one side of the room to the other. And literally, over two hours of mingling, he never got near her. That's fine. Wow. And yeah, it was a terrific, a great victory. 
you know, revenge best served cold. <laughs> uh, I'm at the limo when we're getting ready to leave. And as Clinton climbs in the uh, door, he says, and I probably shouldn't be repeating this story. I've always <laughs> said I'd wait till one of us was dead. But uh, anyway, the president gets, uh, the former president gets in the car and said, boy, I heard Elizabeth Taylor was here tonight. And I said, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Boy, I've always wanted to meet her. (laughs) My attitude has always been, and hopefully Bill Clinton will not see this, (laughs) that one of us would be dead before that story got out. (laughs) Mort, thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful time and for sharing your adventures in part. And I hope you are finally working on that great 800-page book that you could write about all of this. Uh, and I, I hope you do, you know. Yeah. Well, I promised him I wouldn't, so. Okay. Fascinating career. From, from Memphis to, uh, to uh, Los Angeles to Smoking oh. the Bandit. And let me just say one more thing. Along the way, Mort, I met your mom very early in the process at some premiere preview somewhere we were together. And I liked your mom very, very much. She lived in Memphis. And we used Memphis at Universal as a frequent preview location. So every time we'd go to Memphis, I'd call your mom and I'd ask her where the best barbecue restaurant in town was so that I had something to eat and so that I could take the director and the people we were with you know, uh, on uh, Coal Miner's Daughter or any other film we were doing in those days. And i got to say, your mom was a champ. She put up with my pestering her about barbecue for years. Mm-hmm. And so I just say, wherever she is out there in the universe, thank you, Mrs. Engelberg. Yeah, I thank her too. <laughs> okay. Mort, thank you. And Bill? Yes, thank you. Thank you for being with us. It's a great, the great stories, and and uh, I hope you're well now and, and and having enjoying this time of your life as well, which we've asked you nothing about, but I, I assume you're doing okay. Live in hope. Live in hope. Okay, good. This is to remind you there are no shortcuts on this uh, world of crazy show business, but there are many, many detours. This is Bill Getty with Tom Mount advising you to take Fountain.